In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Ryan Toronto about what made him fall in love with single-page application development despite his extensive experience as a back-end Rails developer. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 119. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it is my pleasure to be speaking with Ryan Toronto. How's it going, Ryan? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind uh, kind of briefly introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I'm a web developer. I've been building web apps for, I don't know, like probably 15 years. Um, you know, kind of got started with PHP, the backend world, and uh, more recently, I've been doing a bunch of front-end stuff. Um, so yeah, that's sort of been my uh, my journey. Cool. So yeah, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is um, I kind of met you through Sam Selikoff, who is kind of like your business partner, where you guys run Ember Map together, which is like a awesome training site for Ember developers and people building all sorts of complex UI stuff. And um, I know like Sam's experience, you know, based on the conversations we've had, he's sort of been basically like an SPA land almost from day one, right? Like he's like yep, yep. been using Ember since basically it came out and that's kind of where he really cut his teeth on sort of his hardcore web development stuff. Whereas I know like you did a lot of rails and stuff like that well before you sort of got into building SPAs. And um, I know a lot of people who listen to this show and even myself included, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, have a lot of backend experience building apps, you know, with frameworks like Rails or Laravel. And, you know, a lot of people are still sort of skeptical about like going full client side for things and doing like a, you know, a fat client app with uh, an API. A lot of it just feels like you're adding a lot of complexity for, you know, why now you have to maintain two apps, an API and a client. And there's just all sorts of reasons that people want to kind of like stay in their comfort zone and just like keep building stuff, you know, that does like classic server rendering and form submissions and, you know, it works, right? Yeah, totally. As as a front end developer, I mean, I feel that way too sometimes. So yes, absolutely. I <laughs> yeah. know that feeling. Awesome. So what I thought would be cool to talk about is um, you are, you know, like we kind of imagined, you have a ton of Rails experience and have built a ton of stuff that way. But you know, for the last I don't know five six years, something like that, you are kind of hardcore into the SPA land. And I think you're sort of like a true believer in that (laughs) future. So I thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective and learn more about like your story, what kind of some of the moments were that really pushed you to want to start building things this way, what some of the problems you were running into are, and just kind of give people some perspective that maybe are still, you know, building things in like a server rendered way and don't necessarily believe in this in the same client side future that maybe you believe in so i don't know maybe the best place to start would be um you know when did you first build your first like fully client side routed like fat client app and what were sort of the motivations for it originally if you can kind of remember yeah yeah absolutely so i think you know to address like sort of the you know, backend folks that are, they might be a little hesitant to like, you know, jump into SPA, there's all this complexity. Um, you know, one of the things that brought me into this was I was working on, I was working for a company and they had a web app and a huge component of this web app was um, written in Flash. It was interactive and you could like zoom in and stuff would highlight and we would push stuff out to the client. And um, I think this was like around 2009 
the iPad came out or like our clients started using the iPad and they wanted to run our app on the iPad. Um, and there was also an Android tablet that they wanted to use. So, uh, it, you know, it fell on me to figure this out, to, uh, to get the web app running on the iPad. Um, so that was sort of how I got involved. It was like a, um, there was a technology problem that I had to solve. Yeah. Uh, so I found uh, Backbone JS. We had a Rails backend, and I, I basically ported all this functionality over to Backbone. So you had to and, literally like rewrite this entire Flash app just because Steve Jobs was like no Flash yes. on iOS. Yes, and it was <laughs> it was really it was really fun. Like I I loved it. Um, I made a huge huge mess. You know, I had JavaScript files that were thousands of lines long. Um, you know, it was it was it was fun, um, but I I sort of you know, quickly realize that like this, this sort of SPA or this JavaScript development, I don't, I don't even know if SPA was like a term back then. Yeah. Um, but this like JavaScript development, it didn't feel like rails. It didn't feel like, it didn't feel like there were conventions. It didn't feel like, um, kind of felt like I was on my own and I was just sort of making stuff up as I went. Sure. And, um, you know, that's fun, but, but when you're maintaining like a big production app, it's, it's feels really bad six months later. So with uh, Backbone back in the day, I can't even remember like what was routing and stuff like in Backbone. Like this was before I think we had like the proper like push state stuff where you could like fully replace the URL and everything. Right. So it was all just like old school, like hash based routing and yeah. So, so this is like, you know, I said, I made a mess. Um, because this was running on the iPad, I didn't even have to worry about routing. Uh, okay. it's, it, what, like the folks that were using this, they didn't really interact. They didn't click links or they didn't click external links to come to this app. Um, they would always start from the homepage. So I kind of got like a free pass there, uh, which was, which was really nice. So I think that backbone, was it designed to be like one of those apps that just like sits on your home screen where you don't even like see the URL bar and stuff like that? Kind of that's, that's, you know, it started off as like port this web app, yeah. to to this but then later on we realized it's like okay yeah this actually could be kind of like a, a cross between native and um, web experience mm -hmm. so yeah I think I think backbone did have some routing stuff I mean I, I think a lot of the stuff I did was just rendering views and tearing views down but I, I think they did have some um, you know not like the routers that we have today but they got had some, it. okay so a yeah. lot of it was just like not even like linked basically it was just like this is the state of the app if you ever hit refresh, yes. like your state will be gone. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes, absolutely. Got it. Okay. Or, yeah, or I'd or, or I'd get clever and put some stuff in local storage. Local storage. And try, to, try to put you back to where you were, and that would only work half yeah, the time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Cool. So you're building this app. You're sort of like porting over um, this Flash app. The whole time, were you like, were you convinced that? it was necessary to use these technologies to like create the experience that needed to be created. Cause I know like, you know, this, I know like a feeling that a lot of people have is you buy into a lot of this like crazy SPA complexity a lot of time in terms of what it feels like with your 11 billion files and your node modules folder and all this stuff just to build your blog with Gatsby or something. You know what I mean? It's like, why am I like, this could yeah. just be an HTML file on a server. Like what am, <laughs> what am I torturing myself like this for? So when you were building this thing, did it kind of feel justified? Like what did it necessitate like some of this super kind of client driven, you know, interactivity and stuff? Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so I guess yes and no. So, so do like the technical requirements of this thing, having to be a website that runs on the iPad, um, yeah, it's like JavaScript's really the only solution there. It had um, to work offline? 
As no, no, it didn't. It didn't have to work offline. It, I think, it it did work offline, but we didn't have like a hard requirement that it had to sure. work without internet connection. Basically, you would download a bunch of state, and then you would you would interact with the app. Yeah. So, um, and there was some crud stuff back to the back end, but um, yeah, there was no like hard requirement there. Um, I think when I got started, I you know it it definitely felt um, like there was a lot of complexity. Um, for sure, like I, I, I knew that I had to build this in JavaScript, but did I want to? Like, no. You know, I want to use Rails and sure. all my conventions. Um, you know, part of like what made me kind of fall in love with the SPA stuff is is after we did like the Backbone app, um, we sort of realized it's like okay, this this can work, um, but this is unmaintainable, and we started exploring other solutions. And at the time, Ember was. Um, was one of the the only JavaScript frameworks that were that was tackling this problem. Yeah, when, build. when did Ember first come out? Um, God, I want to say like maybe two thousand nine, two thousand ten. No, right. maybe like two thousand twelve. I'm I'm really bad with dates, so I should. Two thousand eleven, <laughs> it looks like, was the first okay. release. Yeah, that's all. I mean, that's a long time ago in uh, computer yes. years. You know? Yes. <laughs> and when did React come out? Two thousand fifteen or two thousand. I don't think it was 2013. 15 um, sounds right. Yeah. Oh, no, it did come out in 2013. The very first release of React was 2013. Oh, it's kind of wow. interesting because, like, it feels like when React kind of, uh, when it became, like, really, like, popular or at least, like, started to feel like, yeah, this is, like, something that's really growing fast, it felt like Ember felt old already at that point. But I wonder, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, when did React really pick up steam because yeah. geez 2013 that's way longer ago than i than i expected yeah ember ember sort of always you know um battled that like it feels old you know the stability is really important to most ember developers and, and people that choose the framework so there's always like this trade-off of of making things modern versus not breaking apis also too like ember you know kind of came out of sprout core i mean it did come out of sprout core um, yeah. So that that you know it wasn't like this brand new framework even when it came out. Um, yeah. So I think it's always sort of had that. But yeah, I you know we we were looking for other ways to write this app. Um, I found Ember. I, I had known of Yehuda from the Rails community, and sort of he had believed you know a lot of things that he valued. I also valued, and um, I think I I wrote the thing in Ember in like a, a week, and I was just. Yeah, I was blown away by it. How, so how my my question, I guess, is when you were looking for like a new technology to write this thing in, because like the backbone sort of like invent your architecture approach just felt like it wasn't going to work. You know, there's too many like decisions to be made and, and not enough, you know, convention. What made you want to keep exploring like client side technologies in the first place? Like what made you not want to be like, guys we could just make this a rails app like there's no need for this to be rendered on the client and it's going to be so much easier and we're going to have control over the resources that it runs on and you know yada 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 like what kind of made you want to keep pushing in sort of the client side direction what excited you about it or what kind of um requirements did you have that sort of forced you to go that route right i i think i knew like Maybe if I can't articulate this, I think it, I knew that like the architecture was was right in that like the way the app was used. There was a lot of 
zooming and panning and, and animations. Um, it was an app that let store managers kind of get a view of their store. So okay. they could view into certain items in their store. They could change things. They could get like notifications. So if you have like um, an Apple display in your store, you could see like Apple wants you to put this over here or change this thing out. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, interactions that need to be fast. And, and so I, I think that, you know, probably at this time, I, I would probably, if I was building this app from scratch, I would say like, how do we do it in, in a server rendered app way? Um, but based on how folks were, were using the app, I think that, that they needed those fast interactions that stayed on the client basically. Got it. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So this app, like what was all this like zooming stuff done in like we're using like weird canvas stuff or like yeah this yeah. was this was back in the time where it's just like you know try to do it with uh with html tags run into a problem you know find something on stack overflow <laughs> i think like even you couldn't display like large uh pings on the on the in ios at this time mm -hmm. so there were there were lots of hacks but yeah canvas was i think i ultimately ended up at canvas um, interesting yeah, which was fun. I mean, it's awesome. Like, really fun to play with. Yeah. That stuff. So, it's, so it sounds like it totally makes sense to build something like this app using this approach because, yeah, if you're pinching to zoom and kind of like rotating things around and like navigating the sort of like a map in some way, I totally understand. Like, you're trying to replicate like almost a native app experience in in a lot of ways in yes. that sense. So, yeah, doing we, something we, that's we like had, sorry, go had, ahead. Oh, sorry. We we had thought about native. Um, we had also had interest in getting this running on Android. We were we were typically a, a web shop. I think we had like two Flash developers and um, probably about twelve Rails developers. So native would have been like a huge, you know, native might be like the answer here, but it would have been a huge rotation for, for sure. the engineering team. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you you decided, okay, I need to figure out some way to rebuild this app that I think is actually going to be maintainable long term. You kind of discover Ember. You rebuild it in Ember in just a couple of weeks. At what point did you sort of decide like Ember, you know, because that was kind of your first exposure as far as I understand to like SPAs done in a way that felt great. Yes. Um, like what point did you feel like this is how I want to build everything? You know what I mean? Like, or, or did you not feel that way? Or did you still kind of feel like, well, if I need to make some highly interactive panning, zooming, crazy thing, well, yeah, Ember seems like a good way to do that. But man, I do honestly miss just server rendering documents with hyperlinks and you right, know what right. I mean? <laughs> Ember, Ember was definitely like the gateway drug. Um, so uh, having all the state on the client was just amazing. Being able to like write client-side code on the client and not some weird thing where it's like, it's some client side code, but then I delegate this stuff to the back end. Um, just, just being able to write that all on the client felt right. Uh, I think from very early on, Ember had awesome, uh, awesome testing experience. And that's something that I love about rails being able to do TDD. Um, and so having that in Ember was, was amazing. And it made me realize it's like, wow, I don't, like my Rails apps, they might have like some capybara tests, but like I'm not testing any of the UI stuff where Ember Ember unlocked all that. And I, I could be confident when I ship the app, like when a user goes to this page and they click this button and they fill in this form, this is a, the data that's going to hit the server. Um, so that, that, that was like definitely one of like the aha moments, like writing client-side app, I need like client-side tests, I need client-side state management. And I think Ember did 
and still does a great job at providing um, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was like the app, the next like Ember app that you worked on? Like when did you reach for Ember again? Yeah. So the next app I worked on is actually very, very similar. Um, it was a, uh, a conference app. It was like a check-in app that had to run on the iPad. Okay. And um, it was for like TED, TED conferences. Uh, so like when attendees would show up, they would kind of like check them in on this iPad app. Uh, and that was written in Ember. We needed it to run on the desktop as well. Um, and so we kind of like used JavaScript and, and Ember to get like the best of both worlds. Uh, and that was the perfect, that was like, I think that was like the perfect um, SPA app. It was an app that was, you know, open for eight hours a day. It was used by multiple people that need to communicate with each other. So there was, um, you know, a lot of, we did like HTTP long polling for that. There was some socket stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was my next, next JavaScript app. So, so why do you think it made sense to build something like that with like a client side framework instead of just like as a server rendered rails app with just like a form where someone puts in the person's name or whatever and registers them with a button and it loads another page and whatever. Yeah. So definitely like, um, you know, being this app being deployed at, at a conference center, um, you know, the Wi-Fi isn't always great. Um, so, you know, if you need to search for attendees and, and pull someone up, you, you really want to do that locally. And I think while you can certainly build a server rendered app that provides those features, mm -hmm. um, you're kind of starting off with like a hand tied behind your back. So I think the, f the fact that you're buying into like, hey, let's build a, a fat client app, it's going to make it easier to add on all these things. So what did it look like to have like all that data on the client? Like how was it built? Were you, did it connect to a, a server to download it at some point? And you just kind of hoped like, okay, when we initialize the app, we do it in a place with good connectivity. But then from there on out, like it's going to be resilient at least if we don't have it. Or did you yeah. like embed the data like in the repository and have it just like installed on the this is this is one of those um you know every time you use the app you learn something new sure um so we would do we would do our conferences we do about three a year and they'd be um all over the world so we would do one in vancouver it was in like a brand new um convention center with you know great wi-fi um so that one we could just query we could run queries when when people were using the app we would do some some seeding, so when they opened the app, we would fetch a bunch of data so they had it locally. Uh, we would do other conferences. We did one in Banff um, that was like literally in the mountains, so mm -hmm. very bad. You know, not only no internet, no Wi-Fi, but then the LTE or 3G, yeah. whatever it was at the time, was also poor. Um, so that that we we used um, IndexedDB and local storage to kind of seed the the device when. Um, the person was inside on Wi-Fi, but then they could go off into the field. Um, so it was, it was kind of like every conference we did, I would, I would have to like look at where is the conference and what are the constraints of, of the Wi-Fi. Um, but for the big ones that were in convention centers, uh, I would say like we would download a lot of data at boot up time, but we would still expect an internet connection while the app is running. But if there wasn't, it was okay. We could deal with that. Cool. So like you could like check someone into a conference or something and that would just kind of like queue that up locally. And whenever the network connection was good, it would just kind of reconcile yeah, there, sort of. There were certain certain events that we could do that. There were other events that like actually like they mattered and they needed some sort of backend validation um, or mm -hmm. some sort of backend notification. So for those things, we would um, 
we would need to make sure that the Wi-Fi was good or, you know, show an error message and say, try again, something like that. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest reason resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is, you know, you uh, had been like building stuff with Rails, whatever, and like that was fine and straightforward. Um, you kind of got a taste of the SPA world with these kind of apps that you were working on. Do you remember kind of like what were the things that just made you think like, this is how I want to build stuff. This is how I want to build everything. You know what I mean? Like even yeah. looking at like, you guys have like your embermap.com site for your, um, for all your training videos and stuff. That site could like a hundred percent be a Rails app, right? There's not really yes. a lot of functionality there that I've seen that really like necessitates it being an Ember app, except for the fact that it's embermap.com, which would just seem really, you know, unauthentic to like not build it with Ember. Right. Um, but <laughs> well, like, I think, I think you have your reason there. <laughs> <laughs> so like, at what point did you kind of decide like, you know what, I, this is like the one true way that I want to build everything, you know, like whether it's Ember specifically or not, but you know, I like doing stuff where the code lives on the client and i'm like you know building stuff with this sort of almost native app sort of mentality what sort of made that feel like the way forward for you yeah i don't like i don't know when this was but i definitely had a moment where i felt like every every app i build should be a client-side app now i don't think the tooling is there today for that to actually be really realistic without like some huge expense um but if you think about like 
you're building UIs mm-hmm. and it'd be awesome to build them in a framework that is all about UIs. So everything from like from testing to deployment um, to just sort of like the architecture. This, you know, if you if you ever you know you open a Rails view and like your your primitives there, they're not really that great. You have like data that the controller set. You've got some view helpers, but you don't you know there's not there's not much there that helps you structure like a good UI. Mm-hmm. Um, you can end up with you know massive views and then you separate stuff out into partials, but it doesn't it doesn't feel great. It's hard to like test those partials in isolation. Um, it's just it's hard to test. It's hard to to architect that sort of stuff. And I, I think the the UI frameworks they do a really good job at like drawing yeah. these boundaries around components and then providing testing for that. Um, also, too, like being able to make a CSS change and um, just deploy the front end files to like a CDN and an index file to bootstrap the app and not having to worry about you know back end deployment and all that stuff. So I think I, I look at these as you know they're they're all part of web web development, but they're two separate concerns. And I think when you buy into that, you know, that UI concern, um, yeah, I think it, it makes your life easier to build UIs. And I, I, I really do think there's a future where every single app will be a client-side UI app. I think we have a, a super long way to go there. Um, I think we have to have UI frameworks be able to do everything that backend frameworks can do before we get to that point, and, and they can't today. Yeah. Um, so. So I think what you're talking about is a pretty interesting, like, I think it's like um, a difference in perspective, maybe, between what a lot of people who love working in the back end have versus, you know, what someone like you who likes working in the front end is. And um, correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but to me, it sounds kind of like what you're saying is that in a tool like Rails or a framework like Rails, um, sort of like the view layer is is sort of like a, a low priority thing. You know, it's kind of like a, not necessarily quite an afterthought, but like the heart and soul of the app is like your controllers and like your models Um, and how you decide to render that stuff to the client. Well, there's like some fucking ERB files, do what you want, right? And you can almost sort of see that mentality, I think, when you look at even like demos and stuff that like DHH has done, you look at like the original Rails blog in 15 minutes, like the blog looks awful. You know what I mean? That's not a blog that I would ever want to actually use or deploy. And um, I saw something else that they put out the other day. There was this this like Rails kind of like stats UI or something, not like the terminal one, but like some other web-based one. DHH kind of puts together like a, a prototype of that. And it's like totally unstyled, like looks like crap, like all the, all the functionality is there or whatever. But it just looks like times your Roman junk, whatever. Again, like this sort of like um, attitude of like kind of getting like the, the system to work is sort of like the, where the focus is and like how, how that's exposed to the user and what like their interaction with it is like, is sort of second to that, which I think is kind of interesting. Cause it sounds like from your perspective, you sort of see like the UI is the product. Like that is the only thing that you're really building and anything else that you're doing should sort of be built only in service to like the UI because the UI is what people interact with. Like that's their only view of this product. Like that's all they know is that is the interface that they work with. So it sounds like what you're saying is what you love about tools like Ember and, you know, any, and all other sort of SPA frameworks like react view, whatever the, the focus is like the center of the framework is like 
this UI experience. And that is kind of like the heart and soul of those frameworks. And, um, you know, anything else you do is just, is built around that. Whereas in rails, it's sort of like Laravel and, you know, every other kind of backend framework, it's like your controllers, your models, your database, and then like everything else kind of spreads off that. It's sort of like, where's like the center of the map? You know what I mean? Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, these backend frameworks, they have a million different problems to to tackle. And so, yeah, they're not going to allocate a lot of time to, to the, you know, just the view layer. Um, the other thing is like, you can, you can really draw a clean boundary here. Like HTTP makes for an awesome boundary. So you can have all the client side stuff, um, you know, sit on the client, all the backend side stuff sits on the server and they all communicate over HTTP. So it's not like, um, yeah, I think this is like a harder boundary to draw if you're doing this like all in the back end. Like, where do you, like, how do you organize the code? Is it all, does it only exist in the view? Do you end up having like view models? Uh, that's the, those are hard questions to answer, I think. So yeah, I think you can, you can neatly separate the two. Um, you know, it's interesting just to touch on something you said, having a um, back end developers do demos where they're all like Times New Roman and, and stuff like that. Sure. You know the most success I've had uh, converting backend people to to buy into, you know, supporting an SPA is is not showing them like the cool UI stuff. It's it's a testing TDD because they love they love like it's, I think you said like the system is working. They love yeah, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. you know when I pull up a Q unit and just show like oh look can can your Rails app write tests like this? Do you have test coverage like this in Rails? And it's just you can tell like you know their eyes get wide and. And they love it. So that's you know, if you're if you're looking to convert your back end team, I would I would you know, find story. out what yeah, find out what they value. I think for most teams it's it's testing, um, or at least in my experience, and and show them that stuff. Cool. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how um you believe like in the future, you think like the trajectory really is like we're gonna just go more and more all in on client stuff. And yeah, we're not necessarily quite there yet. But while a lot of people are kind of holding out in the opposite direction, thinking like, you know, all these like client side things, like they're kind of hot now, but like the server, you know, that that's never going to go away. We're always going to need servers. You know, there's always going to be a justification for server side apps. I'm just going to kind of like weather the storm in like server land and see kind of what, what survives because I know like that's going to be there. You're kind of looking at with the opposite perspective, which is like, I think one day we're probably not going to have to really do a whole lot of server-side stuff like because we certainly are doing less now than we did um five years ago already oh ab- absolutely that more and more you know things that you would write in your back end are becoming commoditized um you know 10 years ago i would have written an app that that talks to um that does like ach payments and credit card payments now i embed some stripe javascript yeah. uh, the same thing with um image uploads you know, I would have uploaded the, an image and put it in a temp directory and, and run, you know, R magic or image magic on it. And now it goes, you know, right to, to S3 or Cloudinary or ImageX. Um, and I don't, I don't care what they do, how they do it, as long as I get my image in the correct size. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is going to be the trend that we see. I think more and more um, backend, backend services that, you know, are going to be the same across all backend apps, so not domain logic is, is going to get commoditized. And I, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think I would rather bet on UI technology today versus first backend technology. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think that's an interesting way to think about it because like, I think there's always going to be 
new companies and new tools being built that like are part of that movement of commoditizing the back end, right? Like, you know, if you if we talk about this future where it's like I'm only going to be writing front end stuff because the back end is all commoditized, that doesn't mean that the engineers at Stripe aren't going to be writing back end code. Like, that's actually their only job now is to like fill right. in that gap for everybody else. And there's always going to be a need for for services and tools like that that do that. But I think um, I think what you're kind of talking about and what and what has really clicked for me too over the last couple of years, even though I still haven't really embraced it and tried to build anything this way. But I, I think it makes a lot of sense that if you, if you consider yourself like an application developer, that you should probably be doubling down on a tool designed for helping you build the experience of that application, right? Which is something that's focused in kind of the UI area. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I, I should say like the types of apps that I work on are like, you know, business has some problem, they're they're solving it with, you know, Excel and they want to build a web app that does it. So I'm I'm not working on like, you know, big back end services or or anything like that. Um yeah. but yes, yes, ab- ab- absolutely. And I do, you know, I do think that like like I said, like the front end technology, uh, I I don't think it's it's there. Um, today, it certainly can't replicate every everything we can do in the back end. So I think, um, you know, depending on the project you're building, like if the front end tech unlocks something like, hey, you need web sockets and you need uh, an offline app, then by all means, like buy into UI. But if you don't need that stuff, if you're building a CRUD app, I think it's perfectly fine to stay in, you know, Laravel, Rails um, and ride that stuff out, especially like, you know, back end technology has been around for a long time. Um, and so it's you know it's less likely to change than front end technology. Uh, the longer technology has been around, the more the more stable it is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So one thing that you mentioned too was, um, you know, you think like applications, like web apps, are going to be all built on the client. I feel like the line between like what's like a truly a web app and what's like a website or whatever you want to call it is like pretty blurry. So. Yeah where where do you kind of like draw the line like what's sort of like your threshold for like i'm calling this an app versus like i'm calling this a site like is ember map an app yeah that's you know that's a great question i you know this is where like people are gonna think i'm crazy but yeah i think everything (laughs) everything is probably a web app like eventually um yeah you're doing more than uploading documents and, and linking them together um maybe if you're you're you know writing a book um you can represent that as, as a, a website, but yeah. yeah, I think I think I think eventually, um, someone, you know, one of your customers uh, will ask for a feature that requires, a, you know, you to build a web app, and even if it's only a tiny slice of, of what you're building, uh, you want to be able to support that. So, yeah, yes, I, you know, I, yeah. I kind of I think everything, right? I think it's funny, like when you look at you try to think of examples of things that are, um, you know, like that seem like this should be websites and not web apps and everyone that's coming to mind for me like when you actually think about it is like very clearly a web app like the new york times website it's like okay this is literally a website designed to display news articles like how (laughs) how less websitey could you possibly get but you can still like subscribe and log in and i don't have an account there but i'm sure there's all sorts of things you can do with saving articles for later or seeing what articles you've read or you know all sorts of and i'm sure they have like ads that are displayed on the page that need to be pulled in and, and you know, 100%. they're not just like 
a static image that's up there. There's logic behind that stuff. Yeah, or like Wikipedia, right? Like to the consumer, it looks like just a bunch of articles, but actually you can edit those articles and there's all sorts of rules about who can edit them and reverting changes. And, you know, it's incredibly, you know, interactive at the end of the day. So, I mean, something like my personal website, that's probably a website and like maybe it doesn't necessarily make sense to build that with a client side technology but i actually had um i had a jason langstor from gatsby on the podcast a few weeks ago and we were kind of talking about that and you know there's actually a lot of good reasons to still use client side technologies even for something like that because of the resiliency that it gives you to um intermittent sort of network quality and stuff like that you know if 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 a page is cached in memory on your phone you want to go back and read like another page if you're doing client-side navigation and pulling up like the cached stuff you can still do it whereas as soon as you're on a you know depending on the network for that stuff to come from the server you know you're screwed so yeah it's pretty it's, interesting. and also too the deployment story there is it's it's easier i mean you have to deploy a second app but now you have static files you can deploy them to the edge um, so I think it, you know, it's that, that technology does unlock some features. Um, and a lot of I, the stuff I, that's built that way, like there isn't really two steps necessarily to the deployment, right? Because they're actually like kind of generated at build time. And yes. if you deploy a Gatsby site or something, there actually is no server component anymore. And I mean, you could be connecting to API based data sources and stuff like that, but really you're just generating a, a static site. And I think, um, I think what people think of in their heads as static sites a lot of the time is not really uh they sort of like don't their imagination for what it means to be a static site is actually like fairly limited you know what i mean like anything that's yeah. like a pure javascript site is you know technically a static site even though it could feel like the most dynamic experience that you've actually um sort of worked with right it's static is about like the artifact not the experience Right, right. It's a it's a, a build time concern, not not a runtime concern, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah, I think you know. I think like I, like I said, I think there's a long way to go for for these UI apps to get to um, to you know for this to be a default for you to build every single site as as a, a SPA. Um, but I think they you know focusing on doing things that server apps can do really well. I think once we kind of nail that story, then it 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 becomes easier. It's like an easier pill to swallow sure. to, to build these SPAs. So I think like, you know, things like server side rendering are really important um, just because that's like a, it's a, a big difference and it's, it's noticeable uh, data fetching, you know, is another thing that, that um, you know, those are things you have to really get right and, and they'll make the story a lot easier. So just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, For example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host all of his products like Envoyer and Laravel Forge. And Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracasts as well. Uh, One of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. 
Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned that a few times now, like this idea that, you know, you believe that this is a direction that we're going and it makes a lot of sense to be like sort of doubling down on tools that are sort of positioned in a way that's like we are focused on the UI because that's what your users use. But, you know, there's a lot of holes still, you know, things that are complicated, things that are kind of not quite up to par in terms of what the experience is like if you're building something on the server. So what are some of those things that like you wish existed um, to help sort of the client-side application development experience that you feel like are not quite there yet? Yeah, I I would say like querying data is is a really big one. Um, You know, you think about a client-side app, how it queries data. It goes over HTTP. It probably downloads a bunch of like JSON representing models or, or database rows um, and so if you want to do like, let's say you want to do like aggregates or, or counts, um, do you like download the entire database and then count it all in JavaScript? It's like, that's, you know, that there's yeah, a, not realistic. That, yeah. Um, so then what do you do? Well, you might write like a custom endpoint that returns a bunch of counts, but then you're like, well, why didn't I just make this a server rendered page if the server is going to be counting all the data? Uh, so stuff like that, that's, that's the sort of like the hard stuff that you have to, you know, you have to think about how am I going to do this? Um, you know, there's no tool like SQL where I can just say, hey, if I need a count, I'm just going to run this query and there's probably 30,000 ORMs that can can do this for me. Yeah. Uh, you're you're kind of off on your own in, in the SPA world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Like, I think, um, I definitely think I see like a lot of interesting movement in that direction. Like, you mentioned like there's no tool like SQL for the client or like at least you can't just like write sql queries on the client of course right but like you can sort of imagine that in a perfect world that's basically what you would want to be able to do right like you almost wish that you could just have like a postgres database that's publicly exposed that you could just literally (laughs) fetch whatever data you want from from the client and i actually saw someone post something on twitter the other day that they had been experimenting with using sql from the client um to like a database that had permission set in like a certain way or whatever. And they were sanitizing things. And he seemed like he was like pretty thrilled with it. And it's kind of interesting for me to see that because I feel like that's, um, you know, if you think about like the adoption curve, right? Like, I feel like I just happened to like get a glimpse of like, this is like the very earliest that this idea could ever be in terms of like, this is something that if people saw it would think this is the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my entire life, which is like what people thought about react when like react first came out, you know what I mean? And now it's like taking over. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to sort of follow, follow (laughs) those sorts of ideas. But I think like probably a lot more mainstream version of that idea is like GraphQL, right? Like trying to come up with some sort of query language where you can construct the queries on the client. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. And I've seen like GraphQL that, you know, talks to Postgres and there's some little Postgres adapter that sits between and, you know, takes a GraphQL and, and, and translates it to an SQL query. So stuff like that. And, and this is the thing about like front end tech is that there's so many different experiments on this front that, um, you know, this is the stuff that if you buy into, it's probably going to change. Um, 
you know, I think this is a lot of the concern that the, the folks that hang out in the back end sure. um, have. But yeah, it's it's super exciting. Yeah, can you think of any other um, any other areas where you feel like things are just not quite there yet on the, on the client side application front? Oh yeah, I mean for sure. So one one big one for us was server side rendering, and um, you know we were building client side app. We didn't really care about server side rendering. Our, our users certainly didn't care about it. We could get the renders fast enough, uh, <laughs> and then we started uh, posting links on Twitter and. Uh, you know, there's no OG tags. There's just like whatever's in like your default bootstrapping index HTML shows up. So, um, yeah, that was that was pretty painful. Like you know, realization there. So yeah, uh, it's it's annoying that you even have to solve that problem in some ways because I know like the mindset that a lot of people tell you you should sort of embrace when you're building like a a single page app is to think of it like a desktop app. You're just using like web technologies, but you're building like a an, an application like. Um, but because it's like served on the web, there's all these expectations about like, it should be linkable just like a website. And I think that's a great, and you, it's like a great idea because like, that's sort of like the most awesome thing about the web is URLs. You know what I mean? Like you can get to things with these like universal resource locators (laughs) and, um, (laughs) you know, being able to like deep link into like a page on an application is awesome. That's like, that's like something that web applications enable that you actually can't do with, you know, like your QuickBooks Mac OS application, you know what I mean? There's no way to just like send someone in a text message, something that they can click that goes to the right section of that app or whatever. Whereas you can totally do that with a web app, but it means, uh, it means things get a a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about like a website, there's so much infrastructure on the internet, like, you know, just bots and, and, you know, Twitter bot and Slack bot, they expect websites to work like websites and return HTML. Mm-hmm. Um, and when your website doesn't do that, uh, cause your client side app, um, yeah, just stuff, small things break. Um, and those small things, even though they're small, they're, they're hard to, to get right. They're hard to, to fix. It's not just, Oh, let me turn on server side rendering. Um, it's, it's what do I do if, um, you know, how do I make my JavaScript app run fast on the server? My JavaScript app is, uh, it's meant to run for like an entire, li- uh, entire life cycle of the application where yeah, like a server like rendered app is just a life cycle of a request. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's like how they're actually like two totally different contexts and like, how do I think about that? And like, what's the initial render? And, and so this is, you know, this was like a big thing that we addressed over the last year, year or two, um, and it's definitely it's just like a lot, a lot of small paper cuts. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Um, what else is there? Like, can you think of any other sort of like? Oh yeah, e- even got, just I've like got, I've, got a, I've got a list of miles. Yeah, 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 yeah. What else do you got? <laughs> one, one, one that I always get a, a kick out of is um, I think users of web applications are trained that when they you know they click links, um, they're going to get new fresh data. It's like every link they click is is a fresh paint. Even if they can't describe that, they're just yeah. changed. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm on one computer and I edit something, and then like I click a link on another computer, I'll see that edit once I click the link. Yeah. Um, in SPAs, I always get like a kick out of when someone reports a bug that is like it was a bug that was fixed two weeks ago, but they never refreshed the app. I'm like, oh, that's cool. They they had the app open for two weeks. Um, but that's that's one. It's like synchronizing data, uh, getting you know getting the expectations that users have of, of using web apps into into the SPA. Um, Cause we can't just go, you know, 
refresh all our client-side state on every link click because um, then we lose some of the benefits of maintaining client-side state. So that's, sure. that's sort of a thing that, that we have to solve. And we've tried like various things of um, we'll have like our front end run queries and they'll like expire after so long. So let's say like this query expires after a day. So if they've run it, and they run it within a day, it'll just like return from cache. It won't actually issue another HTTP request, but then after a day, um, now it'll issue another HTTP request to refetch the data. So we've done some stuff like that, but it's still not like, it's not on when they click a link. It's it's based on something else, it's based on time. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Me and uh, my friend Jonathan, we're kind of hacking on this kind of front-end framework that he's been working on, this Inertia.js thing, which is kind of meant to be an interesting middle ground between doing like a fully server rendered thing and a client rendered thing. And basically the, the interesting parts of like this working on it is really just like figuring out how to deal with uh, history and like navigation and making everything work that way. And, and also dealing with things like you're talking about, like the client side bundle, getting out of date and stuff. I think the approach that we like landed on most recently that seems to work decent is basically passing like an application version as like a header with like every request that kind of goes back to the server. So you can sort of see like, okay, this person like sent a request from the app and the version was whatever hash. And actually the current version of the app is whatever. So we're just going to kick back a response. It's basically like your shit is out of date. That just triggers the app to kind of redownload itself or whatever. Yeah. But, it's funny. It's funny. We've, we've done something similar before, but this is a, this is a kind of thing that like it's everyone is, they're kind of all solving it the same way, but they're all off on their own. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. all coming up with our own solutions here. Yeah. I saw Gary Bernhardt tweeting the other day too about, um, I guess he's working on some sort of like TypeScript API or something and, and with an SPA and trying to like automatically upgrade requests and stuff so that like old versions of the app can actually still communicate with new versions of the API. Um, oh, cool. And I, I, I interviewed, um, this uh, woman, Michelle, who works at Stripe uh, back, I don't know, a year ago, year and a half ago, probably longer than that. Um, and she was telling me about sort of like the the way that they handle like Stripe's API versioning. It's pretty interesting. It's like, it's a sort of like onion architecture where like every time they deploy a new version of the API, they write like another wrapper layer that can upgrade whatever the previous version of the API was to the new version. So if you're on like a really old version of like the Stripe API, you might be going through like 50 layers of like request transformation before you get to the actual API and then 50 layers on the way out. So everything is like backwards compatible forever, basically because they're just like upgrading the requests and upgrading the response and downgrading the responses, I guess. And it seems like you could do like a sort of a similar thing with a, a client side app too. It just seems like, is it worth it versus yeah. just like throwing up a modal? That's like, just please hit command R. You know? Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. That's, that's super interesting. That's the sort of thing that I think that if there was like zero cost to that and you know, you didn't need a whole team of Stripe engineers to build. Yeah. Um, that's definitely something that would be, that would make this like more appealing them to make it easier to buy into this, this vision that I have. Yeah. Yeah. What else you got? Any other, uh, any other gripes? So what, <laughs> oh, um, so like validations and, and crud is you kind of end up doing it twice because you want to provide fast feedback on the client. Yeah. Um, but then you're also not going to just accept that the client did validation and write whatever you got 
to your database. So you, so you end up, um, there are some places where you duplicate logic. Um, and sometimes there's like different validation concerns, right? Like sometimes like the front end is going to ha have um, just validation around the input and the back end might validate some other things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, there, there are certain areas that like you want to do all this fat client stuff and, and you sort of end up finding yourself back in, in the back end. What would the ideal sort of like developer experience sort of like application development environment sort of look like do you think in your head like we're talking about stuff like um you know data fetching and ideally we don't really want to have to be writing a rails api and a react app or whatever um do you think there's like a, a future one day where you're like specifying your data schema in your client side you know repository and specifying like your server side validation rules as just you know some definitions file that eventually ends up getting synchronized or deployed to whatever sort of data as a service solution you're using or yeah yeah no, it's funny you say that sam and i work on a tool um called mirage and and this is sort of our workflow is we build everything out in the ui first and, and mirage lets us basically mock out a backend without building a backend and we can actually put logic in there so it's not just like simple json mocks we, we can do filtering and sorting and validations and all this stuff um and then oftentimes yeah we end up duplicating this when we go to build the backend because we want this to run in like a real production environment and so yeah i think the future is something that's you know kind of like a pay-as-you-go thing and as you're building your ui you can also build up your backend but you're you know you're not all tabbing to a rails app and yeah like you're somehow doing switch. it without switching contexts yeah i think that's that's really important um so yeah i think like the future the future state there is or like the, the ideal state is something where um you know you can build you can build the ui with um with like http in mind but that doesn't mean you have to run off and build a production HTTPI server just to just to you know work on your ui and make your button green right like yeah. you should be able to do that in isolation um and i think there are like certain tricks you can do where as you start to build up these mocks it, it turns out that like they could actually be production ready right like you spend a lot of time um specking out what what sort of responses the front end is expecting from the back end and since you've done all that work like can you turn that into a production artifact and i i, th I think the answer is is yes um you know we're like i said we're far away from this but um yeah 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 i think that makes sense like if you're if you're trying to build like some sort of basically fake api layer for your client side app and you want it to be as realistic as possible and to like simulate sort of the same sorts of things that would happen so even as simple as like okay i have this app where I can create a new post and now when I go back to the page that has a list of posts, well the posts I created should be there, right? And then like the simplest version of like the fake data sort of story, um, that doesn't work. Like you just have like some static JSON that shows the list for the thing and you have some it's depending on how you do it like maybe like you just have the code commented out that actually makes the api request when you hit the button and it just pretends that a success state happened or maybe um you literally have some fake server that is running as a separate terminal tab that 
you know, has some route definitions that are like, oh, this returns this static JSON, this returns this response code with this static thing. And they're not really connected in any way, right? There's no like right. side effects that affect route A when something interacts with route B. But as you build out something and you're trying to like be able to really see like, okay, does this thing even work? I think those whatever fake layer you're using has to sort of get more and more sophisticated and more and more real to the point that eventually it has to be basically completely undiscernible from the real thing. So wouldn't it be nice if you could just deploy all that somehow, because like you already did all the work to make sure that the behavior and the interaction between all this data was actually accurate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, It's like you want, you want this, you know, you want your app to be able to talk to a server that can give back real, real responses, but you don't want to like worry about um, like what it means to build a production server while you're prototyping the front end. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it turns out that like um, actually, if you can give back real responses, you've actually just thought about what it means to build a production server and, and the rest of the stuff, like the deployment and the scaling, um, that can all be taken care of automatically for you. So. Yeah. Very cool, man. Well, maybe it's a good time to start wrapping things up, but do you have any sort of like any other interesting topics or anything like that that you think we haven't touched on or any ideas that you think are worth sharing for for people who are maybe still like sort of kind of hesitant to really dive deep into the the SPA world? Anything that could maybe Yeah, I know I know we spent, you know, a, a lot of this episode talking about like the the pitfalls. Um Yeah. But I, I think well, there's I, a- I think that speaks to the fact that you have used this stuff because if there's nothing that you hate about it, then you probably haven't used it long enough. Right. Right. And also too the fact that, you know, I've run into all these problems and yet if I were starting a new app, this is, this is what I would be using. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think it, I think it's really about what, what can you do, um, with the UI frameworks that you can't do on the the back end, and it's stuff like state and, and local data, um, and testing. And that, that stuff is really powerful. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you're a backend developer that, that loves TDD, um, like give these UI frameworks a try because you will, you will fall in love. That's, you know, it's one of the main reasons I fell in love. So definitely give them a shot. Cool, man. Uh, what's the best way for people to sort of kind of keep up with uh, you and what you guys are working on with Ember map and stuff like that? Yeah. So, uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, Ryan Tio tweets and, uh, my, our website, embermap.com. Those are the, the best places to, to keep up. What about this Mirage thing that you guys are working on? Where can people find out more about that? Uh, MirageJS.com. Not okay. not sure if it'll be live by the time this airs. Um, this will be out one week from the day that we're recording. So uh, okay, have- um, yeah, let's 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 say it'll be live. Mira- All right, <laughs> MirageJS.com. <laughs> Don't tell Sam. <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about this stuff. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, answering my questions. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me, Adam. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ryan about single-page app development. If you're interested in the show notes, you can head over to fullstackradio.com slash 119 to check them out. Thanks to DigitalOcean and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.